Well, lasso. So I'd just like to comment the two, two things over the last several days have given me a great deal of joy. And one is uh, when our very dear Camille was laid up. Um, that it wasn't people who were professionally paid. Um, I'm sure people there in the, in the kitchen would have provided him with his meals. We would have simply made the request. But it wasn't done professionally. It was done by Dharma friends, taking care of Dharma friends. And that's the way a Sangha really works. We didn't turn it over to professionals. We took care of it. You took care of it. Seamlessly, joyfully, gracefully. And I just say that gives me enormous satisfaction and delight. Really. So thank you all, everybody involved in that. And then, of course, last night. It was so incredibly sweet. Uh, and gave me just joy, seeing all the joy that was manifesting with you all. You know, just there was such lightness there. Uh, and having not, not simply lightness, as if you had been out on some outing, but all in virtue, all in dharma. Uh, and that sense, again, a real sense of community. So I think by now, it took a little while, up and down, up and down, but a sense of that striking the balance, you know, that we are here for, let's say, 37 individual retreats and in our individual rooms and all of that. It's very true, very important. Each of us is setting up our, has set our own uh, discipline, our own daily schedule. They, they vary widely, I'm sure, as, as exactly as they should. But we're not just here. 37 people who happen to be in the same place at the same time doing something very similar, but there's really a sense of community. So, fellowship, sangha. So I've told this story, it's a very short story, but I'll tell it again in case there might be one person here who hasn't heard it, or maybe somebody on the podcast who hasn't heard it. <laughs> podcast, give me, a, give, give me a hand here. Uh, and it was just a very, very short story. But it's... Um, I don't know exactly what Ananda was witnessing, but I think he was witnessing sangha in actions, a healthy sangha, really supporting each other in friendship. You know? And he was just taking delight in that. And he was with the Buddha. He was always with the Buddha. That was his agreement, actually. I'm going to take a little step out. And that is, the Buddha had a number of attendants. I don't know exactly how many. A good Pali scholar would know. But it was, it was a few. Um, and he kind of went through them, <laughs> you know, and kind of released them until something like maybe 25 years or so before his Parnivana, then uh, he called upon Ananda with a request that he would be his personal attendant. But Ananda really had guts. Because really, if a Buddha asks you to be his attendant, what are you going to say? You know? But he didn't just say, but yes, it would be a tremendous honor, of course. I would love to be the attendant of a fully awakened being. He didn't say that. He set forth a number of, what you say, what's it called? Requirements. <laughs> he did. The guy had real guts. He said, I will serve as your intendant if and only if, and here are my stipulations. He said that to the Buddha. Yeah. And none of them were unreasonable. And one of them is that from then on, the Buddha would never give any teachings if Ananda was not present. He said, I want to hear all your teachings. From now on, no teachings about me. And there were some others, they were all very reasonable, but that was one of them. And the Buddha looked through the list, or listened to the list, and said, okay, it's a deal. And that was a keeper. He never fired Ananda. Right? To, his, to, his, uh, to the very day of his Parinirvana, Ananda was by his side. And happily for posterity, uh, Ananda had an eidetic memory eidetic memory 
um, that is, he just remembered everything he heard. And so, oh, I'm going to tell them, tell them more story. It's such a good story. So finally, so finally the Buddha did pass into Panadavana. And quite quickly thereafter, his great arhats, his great disciples, who'd been with him, many of them for many, many years, uh, with these, and again, they're arhats, so by and large they're going to have very good memories. But they, they held, they called their first council. I think five, they wanted to have 500 arhats. Uh, who had been with him for varying, varying periods of time, I'm sure, assemble 500 arhats and then share okay, whatever you've heard. Some, some people might have been there before Ananda. Why not? But, and then from Ananda on, Ananda's the man, right? And he has the eidetic memory, which is great. And they're, they're going to set, but they didn't write it down. This is 500 arhats who are going to be sharing the different discourses they'd heard over a period of something like 45 years. And they're going to collate this in their mind and then pass that on, because it was some time before it was eventually written, written down as the Pali Canon. But there was one glitch, and that is this was an Arhat's only exclusive club. You could not participate in this first conference if you were not an Arhat. And Ananda had been so devoted to the Buddha, like his shadow, always in such tremendous, of course, tremendous devotion, that he was really, his focus was on attending to the Buddha, Rather than spending a lot of time in meditation, he could go deep in meditation, the Buddha might wander off someplace, and then, you know, he'd miss some teaching. And so Ananda was a stream enterer. He had had realization of, of nirvana, but he was not yet an arhat. Now, these other 499, they'd chosen their other 499, but they absolutely had to have Ananda, because he was the one who'd heard all the discourses since he became the attendant. And so these can imagine 499 arhats coming to you and say, you're still not an arhat. We need to hold a conference and basically make it snappy. <laughs> you know. Arriba, arriba. Something like that. <laughs> if they'd been Mexican, I think, yeah, Mexican, arriba, arriba, yes. Yeah, there we go. As they say, arriba. With a good arriba. Because they're arhats, you know. They would speak with authority. So, poor Ananda got this tremendous pressure on him. They're all waiting on him. They're not going to start. They're not going to open the conference until he becomes an arhat, and then he can, you know, deliver a major portion of what they need to, to collate, to bring together as the collected teachings of the Buddha over, you know, decades. And so poor Ananda has got all this pressure on him, and he's sitting in meditation, and he's lying down in meditation. I'm sure he's walking and standing in meditation, but he got this pressure. Got to do it. Got to do it. Got to do it. You know, he's like an American or a German. Pushing, got to do it, got to do it. And, uh, and then finally, what was it? He was in the sitting position, meditating, and got tired of sitting. So he's, he's, he's tilting over like the leaning tower of Pisa. He's leaning over to lie down and continue his meditation in the supine position. See, I'm not the only person who does that. And he's l- leaning over to get into the supine position, or maybe lying on his side. And when he's tipped over like 45 degrees, that's when he becomes an arhat. Because that push, got to do it, got to strive, got to get there, got to get there, he was in between. He was going to get right back into that mode, probably, as soon as he's lying down again. And he was already there, but in that little, he released all grasping, and then, and then became an arhat. So that's Ananda. Many stories about Ananda. 
But the basis of that tangent was while the Buddha was still alive, Ananda witnessing just a very healthy Sangha, taking care of each other. And he turned to the Buddha and he said, Lord, it seems like having spiritual friends is half the practice. And the Buddha said, say not so, Ananda. Having spiritual friends is the whole of the practice. So, so I want to thank you all, really, for taking care of Camille and for those explicitly involved, Natu, Gache, Elizabeth last night, but all who are participating, and for those who didn't participate, but perhaps rejoicing from afar, as I was. I was, by the way, I was editing the final version of the Vajra Essence translation, so I was busy like a little beaver. I considered it and said, well, actually, they really are waiting for me. To, you know, they, they, I don't have 499 arhats, but I do have wisdom publications saying, you know, we're ready, we're ready. And so I was hard at work doing that, edited, edited about 100 pages. So it was time well spent. So with that little prelude, let's go right into meditation. Please find a comfortable position. It will be a silent meditation. Please use it in the most meaningful way you can. So before venturing into this third and final bardo that we'll be focusing on in this retreat, I'd like to do just a little brief recap to place in context the teachings and practices we're about to explore. The overall theme is the diminution or the gradual decrease of grasping. It's everywhere. It's in the Pali Canon. It runs through all of Mahayana, Vajrayana, Dzogchen, Mahamudra. From start to finish, the release of grasping is absolutely central. Uh, the very often quoted statement from the parting from the four desires or four cravings if grasping, if grasping is occurring, the view isn't there. You don't have the view. You don't have an authentic view. You're not seeing reality as it is. And insofar as there's grasping, it's not just yes or no, right? Grasping is really a gradient. That you should really know by now. It's from extremely coarse to extremely subtle. So if we start there in the Pali Canon, and I won't, I won't linger at any of these points, but I do want to really build up to the crescendo of this next bardo. In the foundational teachings of the Buddha and the Pali Canon, everywhere in the Shravakayana, it relates to the meditation we did this morning, this um, pervasive existential suffering. Okay? I think that's actually a pretty good translation. What's that stem from? Why are we fundamentally, as sentient beings in the universe, why are we fundamentally vulnerable to suffering at all? It's a question that is not often asked, but it's a really good one. And the answer comes back like, like a lion's roar. And it's Zakje, Zakje Nyewar Lempe Pumbo. Zakje Nyewar Lempe Pumbo, or Nyelengi Pumbo. Nyelengi Pumbo. It is these skandhas that we closely hold on to. And they're called defiled or contaminated because these skandhas, this, this body, this mind that we have right now, that it, this is a formation, it is a configuration that's been created by our past karma and it is ongoing, being in an ongoing fashion, it is being conditioned by our mental afflictions. And so therefore it is tainted. It's tainted, damaged goods, one could say. Damaged goods, tainted, defiled, contaminated, but it's, but it's our closely holding onto them and that is grasping. That sense of, that fierce sense of locality, 
the sense that I'm, this, is, this is really my, but that I've got contours, I've got borders, and they're absolute. I can see them. I can see where the space begins. I can see where I end, my knee, and then empty space, and then way over yonder, gotcha, and I can see her boundaries too. And then, you know, other people in the room, I see all the boundaries, and this is where I am. I know where I am because of my body. And then, oh yes, I can feel my feelings, my thoughts, emotions, and so forth. Yes, these are all mine. Absolutely, these are mine. I feel my anxiety, my depression, my happiness, my joys and sorrows. And so all of this totally latched onto with a sense of mine, and in the midst of that, the grasping onto I, the proprietor, the owner, the agent, the one in charge. And it's because of that that we suffer. So now let's, so that's kind of baseline. And then we're moving along the whole sravakayana, bodhisattvayana, and all. It's releasing, releasing all of these layers of identification, grasping, and reification. But now let's get right to the text that we've been studying here for the last six weeks, six and a half, half, six and a half weeks now. And that is, we began with the shamatha without a sign. Okay, so we began rather deep into the text, actually. Uh, and we have that parallel practice, which I just mentioned, but you're all familiar with it, and that is taking the mind as a path. In both cases, you're doing something absolutely critical, crucial for Dzogchen. And that is, you're establishing like a base camp. You're establishing a home. You're finding a home. And I'm symbolizing it with this very, very familiar finger by now. Index finger straight up for people listening by podcast. And you generally use the right, right finger, but whatever. That sense of just resting in awareness, rest, awareness resting in its own place, holding its own ground in its natural stillness, and it's naturally still insofar as it is, as it is free of grasping, identification. Right. So in that very first phase, the door opener to taking the mind as the path is the ability to distinguish between the stillness of your awareness and the movements of the mind. Right. And many people may never have that experience. It's possible. Every thought, every image, every memory, every desire, everything that comes up, before they even notice that they've already identified with it. And I'm thinking this, and I'm feeling this, and I, and I, and I, and I, everything just gets I splattered on it, and, and then appropriated by the sense of I. Right? And even very smart people, you know, and I met at least one of them, thinks that it's just not possible to observe thoughts. I guess he'd never done it, and he's very smart, highly educated, very articulate, and I imagine he assumed, hey, if I can't do it, I'm not sure I even tried, but why would I try? Of course you can't do it, because we think our thoughts. I mean, that's what we do. We think thoughts. And the notion that you can actually maintain a stillness of awareness and observe thoughts coming and going, it's not part of the Western philosophical tradition. It's not very much part of the Western religious tradition, and it has no place in the Western scientific tradition. And so it kind of got left out. Right? But what is that? that ability to distinguish between stillness and motion. That means when you're, when you're aware of the motion, you're not totally caught up in it. And then you remember the first type of mindfulness, simultaneously being aware of the stillness of your awareness and the motion of the thoughts and so on. Now you're getting it. Now you're getting it. That means you must be somewhat free of grasping when you can still have that sense of stillness, which means free of grasping, and be aware of the activities coming and going. Or perhaps you're doing kind of my, what I would, I'm calling the Dzogchen approach to mindfulness of breathing, the stillness of awareness, and yet aware of the undulations, the rise and fall, the coming and going, of the sensations of the breath, the fluctuations within the field, and so on. Right? And so when we go then to shamatha without a sign, 
there you are. You're just resting right there. Like if, if uh, Rikpa were a volcano, where you're resting is right in the mouth of the volcano. But it's a dead volcano. As far as you know, it's, it's not dead, it's sleeping. Isn't that what they say? Sleeping volcano. Dormant, dormant volcano. So in a way, from our perspective, from the perspective of a person who's not realizing Rikpa, well, we hear about it, we have faith, but you know, it looked like a mountain to me. You know? And I just kind of like the campsite and that nice little dip in the middle of the mountain. And so that seems like a really good campsite to me, right? And it's got a little protection from the wind and so forth. So you pitch your tent and say, okay, I'm going to just stay here. I'm going to make this my home. Good. Why don't you, do, why don't you get out a little drill? <laughs> or just see if you can... Maybe it's a little bit mushy. Maybe you can just start sinking. And if you can sink sooner or later, then you'll find... You'll learn what a volcano is. And that is your pristine awareness. Rising up to meet you as you descend to it. Right? So what you're going to be descending to more explicitly, more immediately, of course, is the substrate consciousness. And they call it the substrate of descent. Substrate of descent. Right? And it comes in two modes. The substrate that is a sheer vacuity, just a sheer absence of appearances. That's the one you slip into when you go through that third phase of mindfulness, the absence of mindfulness. Right? Just the vacuity. Sheer emptiness of appearances. But then the other substrate, the adventitious substrate is the one that's filled with light. And that's when you're resting in the substrate consciousness. And from that perspective, this, from this self-illuminating mindfulness of the substrate consciousness, you're simultaneously aware of the substrate in it is flooded, permeated, coextensive with your own substrate consciousness, the light of your substrate consciousness. So that substrate, that comes and goes because you're not always resting in the substrate consciousness. The other one's always there. But how do you get there? How do you go from the, this cool, firm surface of the volcano, you know, the top of the volcano, how do you get down to the, the glowing ember, you know, the glowing light in, in the depths of it? And it's really simple. It's just releasing grasping. That's all. It's just releasing grasping. And that is whatever thoughts come up, they just come up like fireflies coming, coming up in space, and then they just burn themselves out or they just fly away. But it's not only that you're not grasping onto or being carried away because you're grasping by the thoughts, by excitation, but there's another type of grasping. And you've all experienced it, and some of you have experienced not having it. And that is when dullness starts to come in, the lack of clarity starts to come in, the fogginess, the muddledness. We tend to grasp onto that. We tend to, we tend to identify with whatever comes up in the mind. Right? Confusion, sadness, anxiety, fear, joy, surprise. We tend to identify with everything that comes up. So if dullness comes up, we just identify with dullness. And they say, and what do we say? I'm feeling really dull right now. I mean, you know, I just got off the plane. I'm really jet lagged out. My mind is so dull. Really, just, oh boy, I'm really dull. I, 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 I. So there's total fusion of the mental state with our very sense of identity. And why? Because we're identifying with it, of course. It's called grasping. Is it possible to maintain the stillness of your awareness, which is by nature luminous? You don't add that to it. And when dullness comes up, you have a radiantly clear experience of, ah, dullness is arising. I wonder how long it will last. Oh, not very long, I see. And it just turns out to be one more mental event that comes and goes, one more coming and going, one more movement of the mind. Dullness, right? So to be able to maintain that, you can see how that, 
which is really core to shamatha without a sign, how are you going to be wanting that in the next chapter? Right? Falling asleep lucidly. What happens when we normally fall asleep? Dullness and then sleepiness. Sleep descends. It's just a different density of dullness coming in from a little bit of laxity to fogginess to dullness to torpor, sleepiness, and then you're asleep. So it just gets thicker and thicker and thicker. But if you can maintain that stillness of luminous awareness free of grasping, then even though it's covered over by the tent, covered over by the tent of dullness, it may be dull on the outside, but it inside, you got your, you got your lamp. And there you are. And lo and behold, you're looking around and with your mind's eye, so to speak, and it's substrate in all directions. But you're luminous. You're still cognizant. How? Because you weren't grasping onto and identifying with the dullness. And that's how you go all the way down. That's how your, your mind dissolves, melts, disintegrates, deconstructs, gets unconfigured, and slips right down into the substrate consciousness. So you're, you come down to this bed, this bed, like, almost like a lip in a volcano, this bed that is luminous and it's blissful and it's non-conceptual. And then I, the image that comes up is like an octopus. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> you know, I like it. In fact, I like all of them. The luminosity, I like that, and I like this too, and I like, oh, I like them all. I'm, I'm staying here. You know. I don't care what's down there. This, this is a really good ledge. I think I'm just going to stay here, and I'll come up to pee. So it's more, more grasping. Just more grasping. You know. And that's your big one there. Can you let go of the ledge? Can you let go of the ledge? And go into free fall. And, uh, well, that's what the latter part of that first chapter was about. Searching for the mind. This mind that you're, instead of identifying with the mind, you search for the mind. If you search for it, then you're not identifying with it. Just like in the four applications of mindfulness, if you're observing closely, examining feelings, then you're not identifying with them. If you're closely examining your body, you're not identifying with it. And for all of the four applications of mindfulness, closely examining, closely searching for the mind, and then identifying awareness. All right. And then, and then identifying or seeing your own face as pristine awareness, getting some authentic inside. And that's all still in the first chapter. Right? Now, here's a point that wasn't stated explicitly, but it's very, very widely known. And that is, except, except for those people of ex- exceptionally superior faculties, when you're following this trajectory, you've achieved shamatha, let's say by, by way of shamatha without a sign, and you start to break up the reification of the mind as you are searching for the mind, and then finding and not finding. And then you're going into awareness, and you're, and you're finding awareness too is empty. Because right? you can't reify awareness, then you're just stuck all over again. And so then, as you're looking for awareness, finding awareness itself is empty. That's all the Vipassana current, right? All the Vipassana current. But you're getting closer and closer, you're breaking down the barriers from where your conscious awareness is to pristine awareness. And you're getting some glimmering, you're getting certainly some <coughs> aspects of pristine awareness. Not the full realization, but aspects of it. And then Padmasambhava, in this just utter genius, what else do we call it, then slips right over into dream yoga, like holding a lamp aloft in a dark room, 
and says, well, you know, you are spending maybe up to one-third of your 24-hour period every day um, deluded. So maybe a good idea not to be deluded for one-third of your life. And so then these skillful means to recognize the dream state as the dream state, bring in the pure vision, bring in the visualization of pure lands, so you're getting your life insurance policy. That you can die at any time. You know, even arhats die unexpectedly. Remember Bahia. Imagine how blissful he must have been when he had that one little talk from the Buddha, I changed arhatship. He might have been thinking, oh, good, for the rest of my life I'll be an arhat. And then one week later he's dead, you know, gored by a cow. I don't know if he saw that coming. Maybe he did, but most of us wouldn't. And so our, even arhats, of course, are not immune to untimely death. Right? Bodhisattvas, of course, not, not so either. And so we get into that, but then as you get more and more clarity there, then it goes right into the, the teachings on dreamless sleep. And this is very clear here, that he's not, he, the, the intention here, the point of those teachings, is not to realize the substrate, realize the substrate consciousness. That's some pages back, some months, years, decades, lifetimes back in the preceding. But it's to get right next door, right next door to Rigpa, to move into the apartment right next door by way of lucid, by way of lucid dreaming into or just, just falling asleep lucidly. That's what he really emphasizes more than anything else. Falling asleep lucidly, which means you have to be clear. Now, does this ring a bell at all? Maintain your clarity, but relax more and more and more and more and more deeply. And there it is. That's what it is. That's how you fall asleep lucidly. By not identifying with the dullness that naturally comes in because you're tired, you're sleepy, you need rest. You allow the tiredness, the sleepiness, the dullness to come in, but you just keep the light on. And then your mind falls asleep. It's like putting your kids to bed. Your mind goes to bed. But you, the parent, you stay awake. And so there you are in deep, dreamless sleep now, and you're lucid. Well, you've moved into the apartment right next door to Rikba. Right. And then he gives a skillful means. How do you make that transition? Well, it's kind of simple. Release grasping on an even subtler level. It just keeps on, it's one theme all the way through. One theme. And then we see those two modes which we, as we come to the end of that chapter. Those two modes, which I'll, yeah, so those two modes the clear light of realization and then the visionary clear light. You remember the two, yeah? I'm going to say both of them. I think this is what I'm about to say, I think is probably has to be true, is that the clear light of realization. And the, clear, the, the yeah, clear light of realization and the visionary clear light, that these are both aspects of path pristine awareness, path pristine awareness. Right? Now they're going to lead you to realization of the ground pristine awareness, but as they're being cultivated through practice, then it's path. But you note the complementary nature of these two, and that is when you're there in deep dreamless sleep and you cut through the substrate consciousness to rikpa, you're cutting through from a perspective in which there were no appearances. Because you're there in deep sleep. Dreamless sleep, all you're aware of is the substrate, and that's kind of pretty much an absence of appearances, of vacuity. And so as you cut through, then you're going to cut right through to pristine awareness, but you're just going to be dwelling in the pristine awareness. You're not going to be looking at stuff. It's kind of like dwelling in pristine awareness, and then insofar as you're dwelling in pristine awareness, what you're aware of in terms of your surroundings, so to speak, is going to be nothing other than dharmadhatu. So you break through the substrate to Dhanadhatu. You, you cut through or break through the substrate consciousness to Rikpa, or primordial consciousness. Right? 
But what becomes evident? Oh, and just one other point there. So, but, but, so there you've done it. And there's, the, there's the, the pristine awareness of realization. But then he brings in that fascinating, un, kind of unexpected. If you hadn't studied this kind of material before, you wouldn't see this one coming. But then he brings in that other aspect. Remember visualizing Padmasambhava. You're there already. You're there. right? And then you visualize Padmasambhava at your heart. And then what happens? It opens up this luminous or this, this, this horizontal, this horizontal luminosity. Rather than simply having like, like a, a lantern in a bag, where it's ent- entirely clear inside the bag, but it doesn't get out. Well, by visualizing something, Padmasambhava would be a good choice in your heart chakra, which is right there where the, indest- the indestructible bindu is. By visualizing an embodiment of enlightenment there, then that's kind of like taking the bag off the, the candle, bag off the kerosene lamp or what have you. But what was so fascinating there is first you see you're, you're, you're aware, as if during the daytime, of your body, but you saw that expansion, like we've done with loving kindness and so forth, like the bubble getting bigger and bigger and bigger, expanding your field of awareness. But this is what happens naturally. And then you, 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 can, you can go back and look at it. You're aware of your body, then your bed, then your hut, then the surroundings. You know, it's kind of like, whoa, whoa. Get your up and just popped in. <laughs> you, you told me a long time ago when the question came up. Uh, you know, there's a lot of debate. I mean, it's just ignorance, really. How, in terms of kind of very primitive organisms, which are the most primitive that have consciousness? I mean, some are plants in the Buddhist worldview. Plants don't have consciousness. Single-celled amoeba, maybe, but Maybe not. And so there, it is not the Buddhist view that like a single-celled amoeba or a carrot or vegetable and what have you is conscious. Plants generally are considered not to be conscious in the Buddhist view, but even extremely primitive animals are. As, it, as, as Padmasambhava said, all the way down to aphids. You remember that? Aphids. So they're just, that's with the naked eye, well, maybe that's about as small as you can see. Clearly a sentient being. They're crawling around and doing things. Um, but they too have Buddha nature. And they too have this kind of self-grasping on a very primal level. But the question came up, um, you know, how would a Buddhist know? I mean, the scientists don't, and that's because, that's because they can't measure consciousness in anything. That doesn't give them much, much of access to consciousness when you can't measure it anywhere. But Geshe often commented that once you've gone into deep, deep samadhi, maybe this kind of samadhi, he said, for like 50 feet, 100 feet around, you can immediately sense the presence of a sentient being. You can sense that there's another subject there. It's not just some molecules or organic compounds, but you actually sense another consciousness. And so that would be interesting. That would be so fascinating. Which means it would be, wouldn't it be wonderful, frankly? I say this with deep sincerity. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could know with some certainty when, in the gestation period, there really is a sentient being is it exactly when the sperm and egg come together? Maybe. And that would be good to know. But a lot of people think not. Well, when? Is it after one week? After a month? When, is, when are you carrying a passenger? Because the, the, the ovum is not a passenger, right? It's an egg. You do whatever you like, you can sell it. You can freeze it. Maybe somebody can use it. But nobody's going to debate your ability or your right to sell your eggs any more than, you know, you're gonna, that we're going to debate whether a man can sell his sperm. Hey, it's yours. You're not, you're not, 
putting your sperm into bondage and slavery. They're not sentient beings, right? So we know that. I mean, there's no, whether we know that or not, there's consensus from the Buddha side and everybody else's side. Sperm, those little critters there, are not conscious. The ovum is not conscious. They come together, and at some point, it clearly is a living being. You're carrying a passenger. But when does that happen? Of course, I don't know. I, have, I don't have a clue. I have no way of measuring. But if you had that kind of ability, you can actually know. Wouldn't that be marvelous? Just actually know. So, but that expanding field of awareness, and that it's illuminated, of course, by only one source, and that's your own pristine awareness. But I found it so fascinating that it's kind of growing, and then he brings in that crucial verb as you're expanding your field of awareness while your body's sound asleep, and you think you're not awake because you think you're not asleep, because you can see everything in your environment so clearly, and yet if somebody wakes you up, that somebody will vanish, and they'll just be seeing through your eyeballs by way of visual perception. But know that you're not seeing through visual perception. Your eyes are closed. They're dormant. Everything's dormant. But then that crucial verb, and that is as your perception is purified. Purified of what? Grasping. (laughs) More grasping. Grasping of impure vision. Grasping. Then you start seeing Mount Meru. I'd love to see Mount Meru. I could offer it much better after I'd seen it. <laughs> Mount Meru and the four continents, you know, that would be amazing. Uh, and so that's what you're seeing. But now this is interesting because it is said that Rigpa, beyond space and time, right? And yet here it is, it's expanding out from right where you are, right where your body is, from the hut, the environment, then Mount Meru, the continents, and so forth. And so if I try to understand, well, why would that be the case? Because I'm taking this very seriously for many, many reasons. Uh, and here's my, here's my best shot. And that is, although pristine awareness is not physical, immaterial, inconceivable really, it is of the same nature, it's indivisible, from the very subtle energy, very subtle prana. Just like in the New Translation School, Kaikyu, Sakya, Gelu, let's speak of the innate mind of clear light. And that innate mind of clear light, that is of the same nature as this very subtle energy. Very subtle energy. Well, and the very subtle energy is physical. Very extremely subtle physical, but it's still physical. It's located in space. It's located in the space of that indestructible bindu in the inner sanctum of your heart chakra. And that's a place inside your chest. Right? It's so subtle that I doubt that ever there will be a scientific measurement. They can't even measure the, the, the nadis or the chakras. It's just not... It's, it's something different. You can observe them with your mind, but thus far, anyway, you can't observe them with technology. But because that very subtle energy, that's located in a place, and because the pristine awareness is of the same nature as that energy, then as it is unveiled, this pristine awareness, as you're grasping onto it, subsides, then the sense of expansion and then purification. All right. So now we make the segue to the next and the third and final of the transitional processes that we will explore in this retreat. And I'll again be revising the translation somewhat. So here we are on page 169, the natural liberation of awareness, experiential instructions on the transitional process of, I'm just going to call it meditation, meditation. Sometimes the word jhana means meditative stabilization, as in the first jhana, second, third, fourth. This doesn't mean that, it's just meditation. 
just like it's like the the fifth paramita. It's perfection of meditation, not perfection of first jhana, second jhana. So it's a more generic term in this concept. So we go right to the root text. I'll just mention this: that the those earlier references, this is all a crescendo so far. It's kind of a building up from the preliminary practices way at the beginning on through that we can, we'll see very shortly in this chapter that the, the realization, the identification of pristine awareness that you've had thus far, maybe already some glimmering when you're there in the transitional phase or process of living, and then deeper insight as you're in dreamless sleep, and then you shift over and gain some insight of the clear light of realization, the clear light, visionary clear light. But what is very clear as we move into this chapter is that those, real, those realizations of Rikpa are still somewhat veiled, still somewhat veiled by grasping. So, so you've not become a vidyadatta yet. A vidyadatta, just like an Arya Bodhisattva, an Arya Bodhisattva has direct, non-conceptual, unmediated, non-dual realization of emptiness, not veiled by anything, no filter, no configuration, no concepts, absolutely zero, total immersion. For an Arya Bodhisattva. And likewise for a Vidyadhara. A Vidyadhara, a Vidyadhara's realization of Rikpa is the same. Unmediated, non-dual, no conceptualization whatsoever, totally transcends it. But prior to that point, you'll, you will very likely have realization of Rikpa, these aspects of Rikpa, and then richer and clearer and deeper and deeper, but they will still be veiled by increasingly subtle degrees of grasping. And so He's assuming by the time you get to this chapter that you've already, reala- already realized Rikva. As he assumed earlier, and Gatharan Mucha said so, that as you're venturing into this clear light, you know, the dream, that he's saying, especially, you remember, there was a pretty heavy-duty meditation there. And Gatharan Mucha said, well, if you've achieved Shamatha Vipassana, this is very feasible. And if you haven't, wow, that's going to be tough, right? So earlier, the prerequisite was that you had really done the work needed in the first transitional process of, of living. You did the work done. You achieved shamatha and you achieved vipassana. You didn't perfect it, but you really did get re- realization of emptiness. And that's your prerequisite to really moving into that dream yoga, uh, that dream yoga practice, especially the deepest one where you're going into dreamless, lucid, dreamless sleep. But now as we move into this chapter, then more assumption, another assumption is made, and that is you practiced and you gained realization in both phases, the date or that is all three phases, daytime dream yoga, the dream yoga dealing with dreams, and the dream yoga of dreamless sleep, you've gained realization there. And now, most specifically, you've gained realization of rikpa, albeit with some degree of grasping, but you have realized rikpa. And now it's a process of rikpa releasing itself, the rangdur again, that, that theme that runs through the entire text, the natural liberation, which is the, the self-release, rikpa, pristine awareness, releasing itself from the final veils, the shrouds, the configurations, the grasping, that still obscure it to some extent. And so this, this chapter here now is to move from a somewhat veiled, still somewhat conceptual grasping mode of identifying rikpa to a mode where you've just cast that off, like kind of like a dirty quilt. You've cast it off, and then you're just completely naked, stripped down, bare naked, but not down to the substrate consciousness, down to your identity, to pristine awareness. So that's what this chapter is about. So 
So don't be dismayed if, as you're practicing this, you're not getting realizations chop, chop, you know, as he's going, because he's assuming that one probably took longer than six weeks to get to this point in the text. So we go now to the text. In the third general topic, and I'm not going to read much because I want to call on Amir. I made a promise, I want to keep it. In the third general topic, the transitional process of meditation called the natural liberation or the self-release, where awareness releases itself from all concepts, grasping, veils, and configuration, with practical instructions comparable to a lovely young woman gazing into a mirror and seeing clearly what had been unclear, is the subject to be taught. That's a classic, that's a classic metaphor of a lovely young woman, beautiful young woman, gazing into the mirror and, and seeing how extraordinarily beautiful she is. Maybe she'd never, you know, if there, there, if there are nomads living out in Tibet, they may spend years and years not seeing a mirror, you know? And then she says, oh, wow. Blah, blah, boom. No wonder all those young men like me so much. <laughs> I can go on a tangent, but I, I, I can't because I'm a mirror. <laughs> Damala, when she was, my, my Lama Damala, when she was 16, she was breathtakingly beautiful. Breathtaking. And she didn't, and she was this incredibly innocent, sweet girl. I said I wouldn't do it, right? Here we go. Uh, but she, she kind of, she, she didn't quite know why, as they were making this big pilgrimage to Sakya from Eastern Tibet, from Kham, all these young men seemed to be giving, they were very nice to me, she said. All these young men, they kept on wanting to be really nice to me. They kept on wanting to give me things. Apparently there are a lot of nice young men in Tibet, especially if you're a gorgeous 16-year-old. And so previously, so here we go, though. So that's the, the metaphor. Now, the natural release or the self-release of awareness is the subject to be taught. The analogy is a lovely, lovely young woman looking into the mirror and seeing what she had not seen before. That is, maybe it was a dusty mirror. You know? And now she cleans away the dust and, whoa, that's how beautiful she is. And so previously awareness was pointed out and was shown to be just this, resulting in the mind being tenaciously apprehended as luminosity and awareness. So now you're dealing with subtle mind, or very subtle mind. So you are realizing the luminosity aspect. You are realizing the rikpa aspect. You are getting it. By grasping onto it as just that, you cannot be liberated. In other words, you gain realization, but there's still some degree of grasping. That is what he's saying. So here are instructions for enhancing meditation through identifying pristine awareness by way of practice that is without grasping and that transcends the intellect. Well, we know then, by inference, that the pre preceding, in the last chapter, maybe even the one before, yes, you are gaining some realization of rikpa, but it still entailed grasping and therefore still was filtered by concepts and intellect. And now this one, I would suggest, this one's going for total transcendence, to become a vidyadhara. Vidyadhara, this is a big deal. Maintaining awareness, pristine awareness, through careful examination is liberating. So these are called the instructions on the self-release or natural liberation of pristine awareness. Okay? I would, by all means, read, read uh, Gatridamuchi's commentary, and we'll go straight on with the root text. So now we have the meditative equipoise of the threefold space. This crops up in many Dzogchen lineages. It crops up quite prominently in the Dujum lineage. Uh, and here we'll stick with Kamalingba, and this lineage of natural liberation. 
So Padmasambhava continues, merely having awareness, pristine awareness, pointed out as before, and knowing your own nature is not enough. As an analogy, due to letting one's wild stallion roam freely for many years, its owner will not recognize it. And it is not enough for the owner to recognize the horse when it, once it is pointed out to him by a herdsman. Methods must be used to capture the wild stallion, then subdue it and put it to work. So the, the, in many of the Dzogchen teachings, the meditation manuals, they'll speak of gaining mastery over, gaining mastery over pristine awareness. Well, that can be read in so many different ways. Is it like your ego's here and then you've subdued it like a great big, I don't know, dog? No, of course not. The mastery of it means that you can identify it and you can dwell in it as long as you like and without grasping, without the conceptualization. In other words, you can not only identify like, again, oh, the herdsman says, oh, a master, your stallion's over there. Oh, yeah, I see it. But then the stallion runs off. You know? And so mastering, as he said, you, you catch it, you subdue it, you, as a good horse whisper, and then you can ride it where you will. And so this is where you, you really move into the mode where you're simply sustaining the Dzogchen view at all times. And you actually have no task other than to sustain the Dzogchen view at all times. And that's what they're referring to when, in Dujum Limba's great text, Buddhahood without meditation. You're actually not doing anything at all. You're simply resting in Rikpa and not doing anything other than resting in Rikpa and sustaining that until it's just you know, all the time. So having like subdued a stallion and put it to work. Likewise, it is not enough simply to identify this wild mind it is said, oh, at this time when the transitional process of meditation is appearing to me, the confusing multitudes of distractions have been cast off, and without wavering and without grasping, I enter into the domain that is free of extremes. So this is super shamatha, right? A lot of similar themes. Here we are, what sounded like shamatha, except it's not shamatha to come and rest in the substrate consciousness. It's shamatha on rikpa or shamatha in rikpa, I don't know what preposition to use, but it's stabilizing and clarifying your realization of rikpa. So you can sustain it like, you can ride that stallion wherever you like, but also without filtration, without any type of excitation at all, or any type of laxity, any kind of any veil whatsoever. So, and this is what he, when he refers to, I enter into the domain that is free of extremes. Well, if that were shamatha, the extremes would be, Excitation and laxity, coarse, medium, and subtle. But here, the extremes are the eight constraints of conceptual elaboration. Existence and non-existence, coming and going, unity and diversity, and uh, birth and cessation. Did I say coming and going? It's in there too. So in any case, it is this, this now, the, the task, the, the mission, is to rest in rikpa, having cast off all distractions, without wavering and without even the subtlemost grasping, so that your, this, this self-knowing rikpa is utterly transcends all concepts and all conceptual elaboration, all conceptual categories. You finally shucked it off entirely. So read just a little bit more, and then we'll have time for just one more paragraph on page 174. 
Beginners must practice and meditate with unwavering mindfulness. So this is why. I mean, it's so clear. It couldn't be more clearly said. If you've not achieved shamatha, exactly how are you going to do that? This is extremely subtle. This is beyond realization of emptiness. This is realizing something that Arya Bodhisattvas don't realize. Realizing something that Arhats don't realize while they're alive in any way. Pristine awareness, right? And Arya Bodhisattva realizes emptiness, not pristine awareness, not if following the Sutrayana path. The Arhat is completely free of all mental afflictions, realizes emptiness, but doesn't realize Rikva, not while alive anyway. And so this must be very subtle. And he says, so, practice, meditate with unwavering mindfulness. And that is, you're resting there, and you never fluctuate, you never are thrown off. Rikpa, well, if you bring an ordinary mind to this, that's still messing around in preschool, you know, I mean, this is kind of a joke. There is a sequence here, that's why it's called a path. When the wild stallion is not subdued, it must be trained with unwavering enthusiasm. As the Buddha said in the Pali Canon, samadhi arises from bliss, and enthusiasm, which is virya, is blissful by nature. It's what distinguishes the third from the fourth perfection. The third being patience, forbearance, fortitude, true grit. And the next one, which is unfortunately and mistakenly translated as effort sometimes, but should better be translated as zeal or enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is, I think, the best. Um, and the reason I say, it, say that is the definition of this fourth perfection of tsundu or vidya is gewala doa, what I saw last night. That's what I saw last night. Oh, the joyfulness, the smiles, the lightness, the buoyancy of having just spent close to two hours you know, in pretty intense practice. But the lightness, the, jo- the joyfulness there, that's it. It's the taking delight in virtue. Whether it's of giving, whether it's meditation, whether it's doing any kind of service, healing the, healing the sick, and so on. It's the delight. So this wild, wild stallion must be subdued by training with unwavering enthusiasm. If you waver, if you waver, if you lose that, you'll lose control of the horse, fall down, and hurt yourself. Likewise, if beginners pursue ordinary thoughts, if they're still cluttered up with pre-shamata problems, they'll descend to miserable states of existence and will be hurt. So sustain your mindfulness with unwavering mindfulness. That's the first time I've ever seen people being threatened if they haven't achieved shamata. (laughs) Okay, enough for now. Amir, the microphone is yours. So, oh, that works. Yeah, it works well. I, when I'm taking the mind as a path, sometimes experience very continuous um, flows of images. Yeah. And I've heard before that that can be an indication of grasping onto the images as, not, as being more than just appearances. At the same time, they appear or the experience is very similar to um, what I get when I'm falling asleep. So kind of like hypnagogic yeah. imagery, yeah. Um, which for me when I'm falling asleep is very flowy. One thing yeah. flows into the next, into the next. And it, yeah. so, so I'm wondering, is, and, and it also feels like it feels similar to falling asleep, yeah. although I'm not tired. I understand. 
So it is similar to falling asleep because the trajectory of shamatha is going from your coarse mind to the substrate consciousness. And the trajectory of falling asleep is going from your coarse mind to the substrate consciousness. And the process of dying is going from the coarse mind to your substrate consciousness. So, uh, I think I can clarify. I'll go to the, the metaphors that I used. I'm not going to elaborate here. I want to keep really close to your question. But Lama Mipanamache, one of the great, really formidable scholars and contemplatives of the Nyingma tradition of the 19th century, uh, he gave detailed teachings on the nine stages of shamatha. And in that context, he gave different metaphors for the different stages along the path and what to expect. And that's what those, the presentation of those nine stages is really good for, that we don't come into the practice with false expectations, almost always thinking that we should be doing better than we actually are and then feeling discouraged. That happens all the time. And so studying those is not to set up a bunch of goals. Okay, I want to be in stage two by next week and then stage three by three weeks. You know, not that. Uh, but it's simply to let you know what might you expect. Well, right to your point. And that is on stages one, two, and three. That's a lot of territory. You could spend months on that, in those areas, in that kind of that trajectory. But you're definitely making progress. But stages one, two, and three, when it gives the metaphor, what's it feel like? in terms of the sheer volume of thoughts, images, and so forth coming up, he uses the same metaphor, the same one. You're making a lot of progress. At the beginning, you can't sustain your focus more than a couple of seconds, and then you're carried away by something. When you're on stage two, well, on occasion, you can sustain without you know, falling off your rocker. You can sustain the stillness of awareness with the coming and going of thoughts for, on occasion, up to a minute or so. You know, and stage three, actually, you're mostly on your rocker, and occasionally get bumped off. And only on stage four, in a 45-minute, 50-minute, one-hour session, can you stay in that stillness of your awareness even though thoughts continue to come. But that's a lot of progress. But the same metaphor is used, a cascading waterfall. Well, you've seen what they look like. I mean, just spray all over the place, you know? Lots of volume and a lot of chaos. On stage one, two, and three, and those are specifically meta uh, that specifically is a metaphor for people practicing taking the mind as a path, not mindfulness of breathing or other techniques. So the sheer fact that as you're taking the mind as a path, you're having an ongoing flow of, ongoing flow of just a lot of thoughts, images, and so forth and so on, uh, does this imply that you're doing something wrong? Go ahead. As you keep the mic. I would like to clarify. It's a flow not of diff different thoughts, but of, like one example is I see um, a landscape, yep. and the landscape evolves, but it, it sticks to a landscape. It's, Understood. It's just visual, and it doesn't change that much, so it's mm -hmm. not like jumping around yeah, not stochastic. as it usually does. Not stochastic, very good. And so is this an indication of grasping? That is, when the flow, what, what he's getting at with the metaphor is it's gonna be a lot of flow, a lot of stuff, images, memories, fantasies, stuff, just, you know, cascading waterfall. Um, when, in terms of the images and so forth coming up, insofar as there's a kind of a coherence, as you just suggested, that it's, an, it's, it's a landscape and it gradually evolves, or you think about your mother and that reminds you of your sister, and your sister reminds you of the school where you went together, and then the school reminds you of a school teacher that you had, and, and that reminds you of lunch where you had the school. That is the fact that there's a real connectedness among these. Yes, that is an indication of grasping. Sure. It's holding it together to something kind of a, some, a little bit of a narrative. That it's, it's got not, quite, not like a story, but there's some coherence to it. But does this mean you're practicing incorrectly? No. 
It doesn't. Grasping is not something you can simply decide, oh, I was grasping. I'm not going to do that anymore. It's one of those things you can't just turn off. What you can do is try to relax more deeply. But um, trying to make grasping go away with sheer effort, that's like trying to fall asleep by trying really hard. You know? And so, yes, grasping. But then when you, and, and it's grasping that, that accounts for the fact that in the early stages that you're not in that stillness very long very quickly, a matter of just some seconds, and then you're off, you're carried away again, and then you recognize it retrospectively, and you relax, you release, and then you return to your home. And then you're carried away by something else, and you relax, and you release, and you return back to your home. And you just keep on doing this with utmost patience, and hopefully a bit of sense of humor, that you're not getting frustrated, impatient, thinking, I'm sure other people are doing better, I really suck at this, and all that kind of mental rubbish. And so... Simply by continuing the practice, and the mindfulness of breathing can be very helpful because it's softer, it's light, it's soothing and calming, and it has that direct impact on the on the, the breathing and therefore the prana system. That's really good because if a, a lot, if you, for example, if you should go out jogging or actually sprint, you know, run around the track as fast as you can, and then and then jog back here, and then immediately as soon as you get back to your room, then sit down and meditate. And, and, you, and let's imagine you weren't thinking, thinking you know, a lot of crazy thoughts and emotional and turbulent thoughts. You're just running around and then running home and sit down. You're probably going to find that a lot of thoughts are coming up. And not because you had a traumatic experience of running around. It's just that the pranas were so stirred up that one of the emergent properties of a really turbulent pranic system is just a lot of noise in the mind. So therefore, the Buddha emphasized mindfulness of breathing as a way of undercutting, getting more to the, I want to get, almost say like a biological cause. I mean, the brain is always involved. There's not, not a question here. But why right now is the mind so agitated? Well, from the first person physiology of, of prana and all of that, the prana is really disturbed by this really, really active exercise. Everything is stirred up. So when you, you sit down, they may not be afflictive thoughts, they may not be very emotional thoughts, there'd just be a lot of them, right? And so the mindfulness of breathing gently subdues, calms, soothes the whole system. And as the, the biology, subtle biology soothes, then the symptoms of that turbulence in the body is also subdued mentally. So, the short answer is, it's all very normal. Um, hypnagogic imagery, uh, can also have a, a kind of short, like very short stories, some kind of a sequence. They tend to be very vivid, of course. The parallel with sleeping, or falling asleep, is very, very true. Um, so simply continue practicing. Yeah. But the core theme there, as Lerup Lingba says in this text that I've taught probably 20 or 40, 50 times by now, is that you must develop a core sense of ease, a core sense of ease of body and mind for that practice to really work. Because if one is tense, if one is reactive, when it seizes up, when some really unpleasant memory comes up, or an emotion, or mental affliction, anger comes up, oh, I hate getting angry. And then we start hating, you know. Um, if we're there, then we're kind of, we get, it's like, a, like an engine that just doesn't have enough oil, and the cylinders actually start to seize up. You know? So we keep on coming back to the relaxation. Okay? Good. One more before we call it a night? Or should we?
zip off. Okay, yeah, quickly. Karim. Karim. Kamil. That's, that's his other name. Kamil. <laughs> the, whole, the one who is whole. <laughs> yes, so it's just a speculative question. Let's say uh, the um, Shravakayana Arhat realized emptiness, right? Yeah. Uh, realized Nirvana. But then he thought, maybe I would like to become enlightened. And then he would start practicing all those clear light practices and dream yoga. But, uh, you know, obviously his whole motivation was completely different. He was coming from a completely different perspective. Yeah. Uh, is, is he likely to uh, realize the clear light and achieve this pristine awareness as such? Mm -hmm. uh, Understood. In the course of that uh, transition? Yep, that's definitely a hypothetical question, all right. It doesn't need an urgent answer, but, uh, but sure, why not? Uh, I've never heard of a case, and again, I don't know much. I, you know, if in the ocean of Dharma, I'm holding a thimble. Uh, but I've never heard of a case of a person achieving arhatship, becoming a Shravaka arhat, and in the same life, thinking, whoops, <laughs> never heard that once. <laughs> you know? They just kind of like, whoa, dude. You know, they like it, and then they die. And then they slip into you know, nirvana without remainder. And because, I mean, consider, I mean, on this little microcosm of achieving shamatha, I mean, people can get really fat and happy there, right? Complacent, I'm not moving, I'm right. Like, Imagine if you got arhat, your nirvana. You're going to be dissatisfied? That's going to be really tough to be dissatisfied. When this was your motivation to get there, and now you've fulfilled your motivation, which was the highest motivation you could think of, to now, out of that, to feel dissatisfied. This would be like being, while resting in the bliss, luminosity, and non-conceptuality, and thinking, this isn't such a big deal. <laughs> You're not going to think that. You're going to come out of, out of the session and then take in the bigger picture and remember all the teachings you've had on bodhicitta and so forth, and that's going to get you, not just to go right back in, but while you're in, as Jujum Lingba says, Padmasabha, you, you hardly dare to come out you know, because you really are so satisfied. So, but I will say this in conclusion, that uh, according, of course, this is all Mahayana talk, uh, but the arhat does slip into nirvana without remainder, and then after some unimaginable, timeless time, then the arhat is catalyzed, you know, aroused from that extreme of quiescence. That's what the Mayana call it, the extreme of quiescence. But it's not the extreme of shamatha, of course, it's the extreme of nirvana. And is aroused with the sense, with the recognition there's something more to be done. But with this little caveat, it's interesting. And it's hard to imagine, but maybe not entirely impossible to imagine it at all. But try to imagine that you're you're coming back willfully, because you don't have any karma or klesha throwing you back. So you're coming back because you want to. You made a decision. You're coming back, and it's a squealing, squalling little kid, you know, and you ask for it, right? And, but there you are, from the, from the time you're born, from the time you're you know, in the womb, and, and, and you're, but then you're born, you have no mental afflictions. You have none. You don't get them. You don't get them all over again. You're free of them. I mean, that's the thing about nirvana. It's irreversible free freedom from karma and klesha. Irreversible. So you don't get them again just because you're coming back. But now, there you are, this little kid, surrounded by a whole bunch of ordinary kids, you know, in the nursery. And they're all having craving and hostility and craving hostility, and you're just this little baby arhat. And wondering, what the, what the hell are they all crying about? <laughs> 
bunch of crybabies. <laughs> What's wrong with them? You know, you're this serene little ahat baby. <laughs> and all the ones were wow, wow, pooping here and pissing there. And then you get in preschool, and they're fighting and they're arguing and pulling and scratching and punching and bullying and so forth. And <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> and then you get into kindergarten and you get and say, man, I was born into a zoo. Like, and they're so unhappy. Why are they doing this? And your problem is you have no empathy. It's not like you're a mean person, but you just don't get it. You don't get it. In this lifetime, you, you don't know what it's like to feel angry and jealous and pride and so forth and so on. And let alone, you don't also, you're not suffering because you're not, many, you're not suffering any, men, any mental suffering. You have no mental afflictions. So they're getting depressed and upset and angry and all that stuff. And I wonder what that's like. You know, when they're crying, Mmm, salt water. Mmm, you know? So it, it's actually difficult to develop great compassion there because you really would have a hard time imagining what these people around you, in this loony bin of samsara, what they're experiencing, why they're behaving as they are. You'd really be an alien. And so it's said it's quite difficult to develop deep compassion coming back as an arhat. It's easier if you actually are experiencing them yourself and then you get it. Interesting point, yeah? Enjoy your Sunday. See you Monday morning.